I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to the Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Topics included the election of a new chairperson, an update from the exam school task force regarding a new admissions policy for next school year and beyond, and the superintendent's composite performance evaluation. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I am good. That was a late one last night, Jill. So that, you know, that meeting, uh, the meeting last night was uh, about almost six and a half hours. Um, and that was because it was, you know, we had a delay too, where where the, the meeting last week was canceled because of um, a number of things that happened. And, and we'll get to those. But let's start with the beginning. You know, the meeting opened up with the election of a new chairperson. Jerry Robinson was elected unanimously as a new chair of the school committee and Michael O'Neill maintained his position as vice chair. All right, and the election took place because of the resignation of two committee members, uh, both Lorna Rivera and the former chair, Alex Oliver Davila, uh, last week resigned their positions. Their resignations have proven to be quite controversial and we did hear Russ from several community members last night during public comment. Right. And so we are, you know, the, the committee is down to members, Jill. Typically, there's seven members on the committee. Uh, the, the committee last night was made up of five members. Um, there's been some discussion around uh, acting mayor Janie appointing two new members to the committee, and, and, and she has begun that process. But until then, we had, we had five members. Right. Um, but, you know, the meeting last night, Jill, started off with the superintendent's uh, report, where the superintendent talked a lot about graduations. So there are some wonderful graduations this year. Uh, Fenway Park hosted the majority of them. And, and I followed a, a lot of them in the news and they looked like just wonderful events at Fenway Park and, and our students deserved that ability to, to, to graduate and be celebrated for their accomplishments during this incredibly challenging year for them. So it was wonderful to see that. The superintendent also talked about summer school, Jill, and we've been talking about summer school, as you remember, for months. Right. Summer school begins in just two weeks. The last day of school in BPS is tomorrow. And we heard from the superintendent that there are still a number of open seats for summer school. We did not hear. Um, so we heard that, you know, there's, there's about a quarter of the seats in summer school are not filled. We didn't hear about the summer school plans for every student that was promised months and months ago. Yeah. Um, and we heard that there's a lot of jobs open in summer school. And so the programs that are being offered may not even be fully staffed just a week before they are set to begin. So still a lot of concerns around implementation here, Jill, and, and um, I'm hopeful that we'll have a better summer than we did last year. Yeah, lots of balls in the air, it sounds like still. Now, the meeting moved to public comment. There were 42 public comments. Many of them were emotionally charged and contained personal attacks. There was a very real sense from the community of lack of control, lack of trust, and frustration. Comments ranged from the merger of BCLA into the McCormick to the exam school admissions task forces ongoing debate about a new entry policy to questions about who will decide and how the ESSER funds approximately $400 million will be used by the district. So first multiple students from BCLA testified regarding the merger with the McCormick summed up with these comments. I'm sensing a pattern here. BPS wants to push us into a school meant for middle schoolers and a school building that doesn't stand a chance against high schoolers. Some teachers have to share a room and there are not enough lockers for every student. We I, won't even I, have an auditorium. 
and the students that are into theater won't be able to have fun and participate in what they're interested in. All I ask is that BPS listens when we tell them what's wrong and to give us what we deserve, which is a 21st century school. When we need enough space for classrooms and libraries and a theater. One where each teacher has their own room and students have after school programs to choose from. So Jill, for a long time listeners and followers of school committee, you'll remember that BCLA, which is Boston Community Leadership Academy, it's a high school in, in BPS, and the McCormick Middle School, um, their communities came together and, and um, agreed upon a merger to create a new seven to 12 school. I believe that, that you know, sort of that, that process and um, those communities coming together to say, we want to work together to create this model. As I recall it, it was, it was a quite successful and, you know, helped both the communities come together and say, let's work, let's work together and collaboratively. Although what we're hearing again is a facilities issue. It's an implementations issue and it's a communication issue we have with BPS. That issue is not the idea of the merger, but the specifics of the plan and the overall implementation of this plan. And so we heard from students saying, geez, we don't have enough classrooms. We don't have enough lockers. We don't have spaces for, for specialties or for, for what we would think would be, you know, help us meet MassCore, for example, right? Because you, you need specials and you need access to better facilities. So again, one, you know, we're hearing about facilities uh, over and over again in these meetings and then last night, it, we heard again about BCLA's concern about the facilities of merging into the McCormick School. Right. So then we heard from many community members expressing a range of views on what will become the new admissions policy for exam schools. A member of the Boston Latin School class of 1992 offered these comments. My classmates and I attended BLS during the only period, the 25 years from 1972 to 1997, in which representation of students of color, specifically Black and Latinx students, was at its highest in the school's 386-year history thanks to affirmative action. And then she went on to say, The problem is that justice in the exam schools, specifically their elite nature, cannot coexist. This is, become, this is because exam schools are the linchpin of systemic racism. And on the other side of the exam school issue, a, a teacher, uh, a parent and resident of Boston focused on the measures for admission to the exam schools, including a hotly debated issue on whether or not to use an exam as part of the entry criteria. Another surprise I had was a statement by some of the task force members saying that the exam is racist. As an educator, I use the test to evaluate my teaching and students' learning. The Massachusetts Department of Education is using the MCAS to evaluate the students' learning. So technically, this would make us all racist. In my opinion, if the test I gave did not cover the curriculum and was not culturally appropriate, that would certainly be biased. However, if the exam covered what I taught in class and I used it as a tool to evaluate my teaching and students' learning, that is not biased. I believe that finding the unbiased evaluation tool for exam school admission is a responsibility of the task force in order to make sure that the students admitted have the preparation to be successful there since the curriculum is rigorous. So, so Jill, what, you know, and, and we're trying to summarize sort of both points of view on this, uh, what we heard on public comment last night from the exam school, on the exam school issue. I mean, essentially, there are two related but separate conversations happening here. Mm. The first is whether the existence of the exam schools themselves is racist. And the second around the process and measures for admission 
ranging from some who want to stick with an exam to others who want to bring in more considerations into the process, such as general academic performance, growth, or where a student lives, to others who want to move to a full lottery-based system. Both conversations are really important, and both are inherently grounded in discussions around race and identity in Boston. Right. So then moving on to new topics, we heard from members of the public regarding concerns that they have about BPS on the operation side, uh, around special education, uh, concerning the summer program, and also the allocation of the ESSER federal funding, the $400 million that's coming from the federal government to Boston Public Schools. A mother of a Boston Public School student offered these comments. Last time I was here, I shared that after talking with veteran black and brown parents, BPS parents, about my excitement about my child getting IEP, they expressed condolences. It is in that generational expression of non-confidence in BPS that I am here. We have the opportunity to change this. In my work, true equity is described as not everyone getting the same thing, but everyone getting what they need. As I try my hardest to navigate the IEP landscape, it seems that when it comes down to getting my child what she needs, the barrier is cost. I feel like her services are being held hostage. Either I accept the bare minimum and she may get what she needs or I don't get anything. With the pending federal funding, how can this money be expedited to help pay for services needed by students on IEPs to address instructional loss. Like all children, she will benefit greatly from being in person with peers and a teacher. She deserves to see her personality and humor reflected back to her, build her self-esteem and her social emotional learning skills. All students deserve this, but it does not seem like all students will have access to this. I know all about the summer learning opportunities. I got so many emails about this, but summer learning seems very variable in quality and resources across the district. I go to the website and I'm overwhelmed with the offerings and disheartened by how little there is for me to make an informed decision. I look for baseline and quality and instruction, some kind of guide, and it's just not there. What is happening at these schools? How will I know my child is getting what she needs and deserves? And so I come to you with the voices of over 500 BIPOC BPS parents as part of School Facts Boston and ask that you prioritize social and emotional student supports for all students, teaching and learning to address COVID instructional loss. And you can do this by expediting the release of funds to the schools. Um, and it could be a really great lever to make that happen. Jill, we, we found this quote to be really important in, in summarizing a few different issues. You know, this parent is touching upon um, ensuring that her student uh, with a disability is getting the appropriate services in school. She's also touching upon the summer school issue and saying, look, you're providing all of these programs. I'm not really sure which ones are good for my child. And there's not a lot of information out there on how do I choose a program. So it seems like you've just thrown a bunch of information out without helping families understand what is the best selection for their child. And then ultimately, how are we going to be using this once in a lifetime amount of money from the federal government to help support the social emotional needs and instructional needs for our students. 
And, and again, you know, we are in a situation here where we have a committee that is down to members. We have an acting mayor in, in our city. We are upcoming to a new mayoral election in November. We have the unprecedented opportunity to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in the school system and even more in the city to recover from the pandemic. And many people are expressing concern about how we're going to use this opportunity to its fullest extent. Yeah. And, and certainly parents are not feeling like their voice is being heard and that they I don't know that they believe that they're actually going to be able to affect how that money is allocated. And so they're bringing that up time and time again in public comment. So after public comment, the school committee once again voted to extend the contract for BPS's transportation contractor, despite concerns about their performance. And Jill, I, I just to, sorry to interrupt you. You know, we typically hear BPS spends the most money of any school district in the country on transportation. There's always concern around the performance of the bus company and saying that, you know, they don't, they're not on time. They don't, there's not good service for the con- from the contractor. And ultimately every year, every year this comes up, should we extend them? And it's always, yeah, let's extend them for one more year. You know, and it's just, it, so I, I laugh at this because, you know, for years, this has been happening with the same vendor um, right. and not, no one's addressing this, this really big issue of like, how, how do we deal with our transportation budget and performance of our buses? It's, it's, a, tenth, it's a tenth of the budget. A, a tenth of the budget for Boston Public Schools is spent on moving kids around in the morning and the afternoon. It's extraordinary. Exactly. So the meeting continued with Tanisha Sullivan and Michael Contempasis, who are the chairs of the exam school admissions task force, updating the school committee on their progress to date and on what will ultimately be their proposal for a revised admissions policy on the exam schools or for the exam schools. So Ross, maybe you can offer a summary of the presentation that Ms. Sullivan and Mr. Contapas gave. Of course. So Jill, this is a task force made up of, of school leaders, uh, of parents, of advocates in our city. And they've been meeting, they've had 19 meetings. Um, and students. And students, I apologize, and students. Yep. Um, so they've had 19 meetings, uh, two public listening sessions. They've had stu- two student-led sessions. You know, honestly, they've been working on this issue for not only the last year, but really the previous year too, trying to figure out how they deal with the admissions to the exam schools. All right. So they've, they've met with experts, you know, trying to consider what is going to happen here. And now, so what they did is gave sort of an update to the school committee. And what's going to, what's happening now is they're going to come back to the school committee with a, I guess, a final recommendation in two weeks period of time. So in two weeks from now, they're going to come back with a final recommendation and they're mm-hmm. doing listening sessions publicly on June 22nd and 23rd. And so let me try to summarize sort of where they are given, again, Jill, two weeks from now, final recommendation. Here's mm-hmm. where they are. They have two steps that they're thinking about, right? Who is eligible for the exam school seats, and then who is invited to ensure like citywide access, right? So again, who is eligible, determining student preparedness, and who is invited, ensuring citywide access. And so step one, who is eligible? So they're thinking about first grades, like should we use the first two grades of fifth grade, ELA and math? Should we use the first two terms of sixth grades, ELA, math, science, and social studies grades? Should we Think about the final term of fifth grade, ELA and math, or the final terms, two terms of sixth grade, ELA, math, science, and social studies. And shouldn't we 
changed the fifth grade grading system from uh, a scale of one to four to maybe let's change it to an A through F grading system. So it's, you know, works with um, schools that are outside the district. Okay. And then after they figure out the grading, right, which they've not figured out yet, but they're thinking about these things. They're thinking about how do we have a high poverty indicator? Maybe, right? So maybe they're thinking about students attending schools with 50% or more students identified as economically disadvantaged. And maybe they should receive maybe 10 points in the invitation process, but nobody's really talked about what those points mean or what are points uh, to, be, to be had. This is the only place they sort of talk about. Maybe there's points, but it's unclear where else points are. And then they, they said, maybe also in eligibility, we should be thinking about an educator, evalu educator validation of the student. So maybe we're asking every teacher, do we think these students are at grade level? And then maybe we should have a student portfolio that could include an essay, writing sample, or other qualitative measures. And then once that's figured out, we should also think about maybe an assessment. And so we can think about using the NWEA map growth and a growth score, or maybe we'll just use a, an achievement measure instead of a growth score. And maybe we'll use the MCAS, even though private schools and schools outside BPS may not use MCAS. And then maybe we'll phase it in over a number of years. Okay, so that's step one, Jill. You with me? I'm with you. And, it, and it, I, I'm, just, I'm just pausing because it was that extraordinarily confusing. And quite honestly, this is a summary of where the committee is two weeks before they're making their final recommendation. Yeah, so that's step one of who qualifies, who's eligible, who's prepared. Again, no indication here of any cutoffs or, or um, anything, just, just a bunch of things that are in each one of those yeah. is still up for consideration. And then step two, who is invited? So ensuring citywide access. And so here, Jill, we have options A, B, C, D, and E. So there's potentially, we, what we do is have a straight rank of citywide at 20% of st students, top 20% of students uh, are invited. And, and then maybe we'll use straight rank census track tiers for 80%. Or option B could be straight rank citywide 20% and then use straight rank census track tiers and then maybe a qualified lottery in census tract tiers. Or option C could be straight rank citywide tiers at 20%. And then maybe we'll do a qualified lottery in census tract tiers 80%. Or option D, maybe we'll just do a straight rank census tract tiers at 100%. Or option E, maybe we'll just do a qualified lottery in census tract tiers at 100%. And then uh, ultimately, let's make sure that uh, we're revisiting whatever policy it is that we're coming up with um, that's going to be presented to school committee in literally two weeks to vote on. And then, uh, and we'll review that every three to five years. And so I guess, Jill, uh, to summarize, is there is a massive amount to figure out. It almost seems as if the exam school task force was coming to the school committee saying, can you help us narrow this down? Like, here's all of the options. Um, I guess we could have brainstormed maybe a few more, but I think they got most of them. How are you gonna turn this into a policy? A policy that makes sense. And that, that people can understand. Yes. Right. Because at the end, of, I mean, it's, it's always been at least very clear. I don't know how fair it's been, but it's been very clear that there 50 percent of the weight is grades and the other 50 percent is an exam and kids are ranked and then they're allocated to schools. Right. They're offered admission to schools. So it's, it's always been that clear. And this presentation, which had a lot of options on the table, is yet to be clear. 
unless something magical happens here, Jill, we are far from being clear. We are far from having a decision or a recommendation made to the committee. And I honestly don't understand how they are going to have that in two weeks and how the committee is going to make sense of all of this um, information to then make a decision around what the policy will be moving forward. Well, and so school, the school committee members reacted this way as well. So there were lots of recommendations coming at them from the two chairs of the task force. And so vice chair Michael O'Neill offered this reaction and, and really a call for simplicity. I understand that achieving consensus is a little bit like trying to get a bill passed in Congress. And um, when we see Congress pass a bill, you know, sometimes it's where you add in a little bit of nibble here for one legislator and a little bit of nibble there for another legislator. And, and that gets to consensus to get a bill passed. Um, and then there are lobbyists and there are departments of the government that interpret the regulations and, and eventually folks figure it out. I don't think we quite have that luxury here. And I say that because as Mr. DiRugio talked about before, these are real families and students and teachers that we're talking about. And there is obviously intense interest paid to this. And, and I'm just nervous if we complicate it too much. Um, I really appreciate the clarity, how you broke out um, about thinking about the eligibility and how that related back to the charge. And then thinking about who gets an invite and how that fit in with the charge. I thought that was very well laid out and laying out you know, what the old policy was, what the current policy was, and what some potential options were in each, I thought were really thoughtful. Um, I'm being honest, you started to lose me a little bit when you started to get into straight rank option, uh, straight rank, lottery, tiers, that type of thing. It's, I'm nervous about it getting too complicated for people to understand it. And if it's, if it's too complicated, there's concern that the game is being rigged. And then Chair uh, Jerry Robinson reframes the task at hand and offers another way to solve the issue. Um, most of my questions have been raised already, but I, I have one. I'm again, one for simplicity. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and, and to be honest, even though we're talking about three schools, it's really only one school that people are really anxious about. And that's getting into Boston Latin School. Um, and so the question is, and everybody who wants to go can't go because there's not enough space. We have many schools in this district that are underachieving that, we, that people don't want to go to. We have one set of programs that more than enough people are eager to go to. What stops us from coming up with ways of increasing the ability to enroll more, which takes away that pressure Um, of the exclusivity that some people are banking on. And it takes the pressure off of 10 and 11 year olds to feel that um, they are making a life's choice or somebody's making a life choice for them because of prestige and not because of proper fit. And so my question has been, why can't we have a classical academy, another school that is as rigorous providing the same curriculum for more students or giving each of the three exam schools a second building so they could have a middle school, 
academy and a high school, but providing enough of what people want in the city. And Ms. Sullivan, co-chair of the exam school task force response. I agree. I mean, it's so, so the, but the, the question is one for the city and the question is one for the school committee. But Michael O'Neill expresses the belief that seems to eternally tie the city's hands. This is unfortunately and sadly a zero sum game. Um, we have a limited amount of seats between the three. So Jill, what we do have um, is a zero sum game in our current system. But there doesn't need to only be three high-performing high schools in the district. There doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. We are making it a zero-sum game. School committee and BPS have the power to change this. Any plan moving forward should include adding seats and adding exam schools to meet the demand of the community. The, the school committee itself is saying this is what we want. The school committee itself can deliver on this, and I hope they will. Yeah, it was a beautiful, I think, and clarifying moment between school committee and the task force members. And so let's see where we get to by, by um, in two weeks, uh, by the next school committee meeting. And then, Ross, um, we, we last heard from Hardin Coleman um, on the superintendent's performance review. Maybe just a quick summary of that. Sure. So, so Jill, if you um, if, if if you listen to the summary of the superintendent's performance review last night, you would think you know I I think we're in a different place in a different school system. It, it all seemed to be everything is going pretty well. You know, it's going pretty well. I, for one, was sort of like, what, what happened here? You know, we've been listening to school committee each week. We hear a lot of discontent and concern. We have pretty massive issues that the school system is facing. Some would say that they're in a potential state of crisis. And yet we have Dean Coleman presents a superintendent evaluation that says that, you know, the superintendent's doing well and she's rated proficient across, across the board and overall. I would, you know, encourage a little more depth here, Jill. Any headline that reports superintendent is proficient and gets an extension of contract is missing some of the more nuanced evaluation information that is in each individual member's ratings. And so we are posting each school committee member's own evaluation before it was consolidated into one evaluation. And I would encourage listeners to read these evaluations because what you will see is some amazing variance in the ratings where some members are rating the superintendent extremely high at the highest level of some of the indicators, where another member on that same indicator is saying the superintendent is, is less than proficient or is still developing in this area. And so this really, you know, last night's summary did not get into the depth that I would expect um, from a school committee on the evaluation. It did not make firm prescriptions and recommendations for the superintendent's performance. Um, in fact, it ignored the concerns the school committee raised last year with the superintendent's evaluation, where the, where the committee said, superintendent, you have to build a strong team. You have to take care of these operational issues. You have to have stronger implementation. And those are the same concerns that members have now. They, haven't, they have not been resolved. Yet it seems like, Jill, the committee was forced into a binary decision. Per the superintendent's contract, either the committee had to rate the, the superintendent proficient and extend her contract by two years, 
or they had to give her notice that she had one more year to serve as superintendent. And they chose, it seems as if they chose the other, which was, we're going to extend her contract and give her proficient. But overall, Jill, I would encourage listeners to read the evaluations of this, of the five school committee members. And that will tell us a lot about um, how they're feeling about the performance of our superintendent. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Following the meeting, there are many questions that we think are worth asking. Here are a couple of them. How will the momentum created last night by the school committee for the creation of another exam school influence decisions moving forward? What will the task force proposal ultimately include? And how will the conversation about high quality high schools continue once the policy is approved by the school committee? Right, and, and Jill, 73% of summer school seats have been filled. The district promised months ago uh, to know a plan for every student in BPS. Does every student have a plan for summer? And how will the district address the staffing needs for summer programming? And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. Uh, we encourage listeners to first and foremost attend the listening sessions for the exam school task force. Um, they will be on June 22nd at 6 p.m. and June 23rd at 4 p.m. You can find resources and details of the previous meetings in our blog. Also, we would encourage listeners to advocate for a clear strategy on how the influx of recovery money will be spent for long-term change, positive change in BPS. So attend the next commission meeting. The dates and times are listed in our blog. And lastly, please read the school committee members' individual evaluations posted in our blog and make your own determination about how the school system is doing. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.